and welcome to Agri-Food Matters, the podcast from the UCD School of Agriculture and Food Science that aims to shed light on the topics that really matter in the world of agriculture and food. In today's episode, we'll tell the story of horses as it relates to Ireland and how work by researchers at UCD is helping the multi-million euro Irish equine industry produce even better animals. Let's check in now with Julie Dowsett, our regular contributor and the co-producer of this podcast, who is a little more detail for us on today's show and the experts we'll shortly be hearing from. So today we're going to be meeting two significant researchers in the area of equine science, um, Professor Emmeline Hill and Dr. Barbara Murphy. Um, As you know, within universities, the two main focuses are within teaching and research. Um, And it's really important that um, universities work with industry in partnerships to be able to solve problems, real world problems. Um, And both of the researchers we'll be speaking to had actual eureka moments during their PhD research where they found um, something that was really relevant to solving a problem that the horse industry had that led to improvements in health and performance of thoroughbreds. Thanks, Julie. Right, let's hear now from Barbara Murphy. My research area is chronobiology, which is the the science of biological timing. It's all to do about the uh, with the animal's internal biological clock and these rhythms in physiology, which can be daily rhythms called circadian rhythms or annual rhythms called circa annual rhythms are all as a result of four billion years of the very powerful evolutionary pressure that is the light-dark cycle that all animals were exposed to. So the fluctuating changes in light and dark as animals evolved gave rise to internal clocks that help us uh, time our physiology to the best time of day. And we kind of were becoming aware of that as human beings, aren't we? They talk about sleep hygiene and this and that. It's a fairly recent thing, but we don't tend to think of it for animals. I know. And I mean, we are starting to make good progress with regards human health and lighting and circadian rhythms. But it's equally as important, probably more so for the animals we've domesticated because we've taken them out of their natural cycle where they would be ex- exposed to sunlight and darkness at nighttime and put them in housing and stables. So how we manage their lighting has a huge impact on their health. And did you have, you know, to use a kind of a scientific cliche, a eureka moment where you suddenly thought, OK, this is important for animals and uh, we need to look after this a little bit better? I guess you would say I did. I was lucky enough to do my PhD at the University of Kentucky. And prior to that, I had worked on some large stud farms for the likes of Coolmore and Godolphin out in the States. And I looked after some very valuable racehorse mares. And I noticed that a lot of these mares um, would be stabled for long periods of time. And they weren't particularly happy that they were stabled. But when you breed horses, uh, lighting has a very important role to play because horses are seasonal breeders. As the days get longer, the reproductive system kicks into action. And in order to fool them into having reproductive activity earlier in the year, we have for decades put mares under lights on the 1st of December, leaving the lights on till 11 o'clock so that they're reproductively active in February. And the whole point of this is so that we can have foals that are born early in the year. Right. Because if they're born early, 
They look mature as yearlings for the sales. They are then precocious two-year-olds and make more money for their owners. So there's a huge pressure to keep these mares cycling early. So we put them under lights and to do that we needed to stable them. So when I was um, on these stud farms and then after doing my PhD in vet science where I used to take a lot of blood samples late at night from horses to look at a very important hormone called melatonin. So melatonin rises at nighttime and it needs darkness to be produced. And I remember my professor saying to me, whatever you do when you go into the stable at night, because we'd have a little red flashlight, don't shine the flashlight in the mare's eye because you'll immediately affect melatonin. And later on, I started thinking, well, you'd only shine it in one eye because horses would be standing at their neck to take a blood sample. And he knew that if you shone light in one eye, you would affect the production of that hormone. Well, by giving mares light, what we're trying to do is suppress melatonin. So I had this idea, well, maybe we don't need to keep these mares in stables for 16 hours a day. Maybe we can give them light on a headpiece and they can stay outdoors where they're naturally less stressed and happier. Brilliant. <laughs> and nobody else, nobody had thought of that until then. No, not not. And we were more advanced in our knowledge of what type of light affects the biological clock. So we know that because white light is made up of all the colors of the spectrum. And most people in their very first science class will remember breaking light with a prism into all the colors of the rainbow. Well, natural daylight from the sun contains a high amount of blue light. And they've recently found receptors in the mammalian eye that absorb blue light and regulate our biological clock and particularly this hormone called melatonin. So I figured maybe we don't need to give white light. Maybe we can just give blue light and use less intensity, use less battery power and it would have the same effect. And the eureka moment was when I saw the lab results after doing some work out at Lyons Research Farm, putting blue light on one eye and two eyes of these mares and monitoring their hormones. And the lab results came out that low intensity blue light to one eye had the same effect on the horse's hormone response as giving them bright, stable lights to both eyes. And comparing the two then, why is the one, the, the approach that you have better for the horses than the other one, than the one up to then? Well, it's not just better for the horse, it's probably better for the breeder's pockets as well. So right now, instead of having to get someone a stable, pay for boarding costs to leave a mare in a stable for until they're reproductively active to take them to the stallion, you can now put a headpiece on, which shines a blue light in one eye, the Equilum light mask, and leave them outdoors. So the light comes on every day at four, it turns off at 11, the mares don't even notice that it's on, their behaviour is normal, but they're out eating grass together as a, as a herd out at pasture and you only need to bring them in in time for the start of the breeding season. And so you're saving same, money? You save about you know about 20 euro a night in Ireland on, on an average cost of keeping a mare. Wow, so you don't need the B&B for the... No B&B, <laughs> no, and they don't, they prefer being outdoors unless it's very wet. So yeah, it's it's it sounds fantastic. I mean, when did you set up the company then to, you know, uh, exploit so what, this technology as they say? Yeah, so once, once the idea, um, I had the idea and 
and thankfully uh, Dr Hill had already just gone before me with her speed gene and her equinome company so I'd seen the process immediately went over to Nova UCD and, and said how do I protect this or what what's the, what are the steps and they encouraged me to enroll in the campus company development program which it was called at the time and I was lucky enough to be runner up in that program which kind of uh, spurred me on to apply for a commercialisation grant to Enterprise Ireland. So Enterprise Ireland were very supportive. I was awarded a grant to do the proof of concept studies to show that you could actually create one of these light masks, put blue light on a mare out in a field in the cold Kentucky winter and have her reproductively active in February. And that was successful and we uh, very importantly published the papers in important veterinary journals so that the veterinarians believed the research and that's where it took off from. Fantastic. And tell us, how has it taken off since in the last, uh, is it on the market now? It's been on the market for the last eight years. Our first market was actually um, down in Australia and the Australians are great because they understand that the least amount of labour with animals is the best for them. They have massive amounts of animals. They have good climate. Their default is to leave them outside. So here was a technology which meant they now didn't need to go to the hassle to bring all their breeding mares in in order to give them light. This mask did the trick. So they were really the early adopters for us. And once they got on board, the thoroughbred industry in particular is so small globally, they all talk to each other. Um, And then North America and Europe came on board. So right now it's not just used for for dry mares to get mare cycling. It's also very importantly used for pregnant mares. Because we have mares that foal early in the year, they foal at a darker time of year than nature intended. So by giving them back the light they would have received in the spring and summer if they were foaling at the normal time, it allows the mares to foal with a shorter pregnancy length and the foals are born more mature. So it's a win-win for the breeders in that respect as well. Okay, so for Ireland, it's it's something that's helped us here as well, not just Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, did, did the fact that Dr. Emmeline Hill, as you mentioned her earlier there, the, did that help that she kind of paved the way and shown you? Yes, uh, it did, how, because how I would not have known that you could take an idea and make it a commercial success or ha- what the path was to that. Um, and so seeing that that she had been able to do that. I just followed the same procedure, really. Uh, we had different grants and different support mechanisms, but the the Nova UCD uh, development program for how to set up a business. And then I also applied for a couple of um, local community funding, the Newbridge 200 business development. And, you know, you where you have a good idea, people usually come to you and try to help you make it a success. Yeah. So now UCD has yourself and has Dr. Hill in this horse technology yes, science yes. area. So must be getting a little bit of a reputation as a place where things are happening. Yeah, I mean, it's great that we have the the animal science equine degree here at UCD and two of the main uh, lecturers contributing to the courses are both successful entrepreneurs and scientists in their own right. So the students get a first-hand insight into how asking the right questions can actually lead to a really good business idea. 
and hopefully they'll be inspired to come up with their own questions and, and follow in our footsteps. Absolutely. And just a final one that I asked Dr. Hill as well. What's it like trying to balance you, your teaching and your scientific stuff with all this business Have you seen the success? color of my hair, Sean? <laughs> I know, it must be tough. Um, yeah, it is a balance. And one of the things that you're not equipped for, I mean, neither Emmy nor I were ever trained in, in business. We were very much a very pure science um, education all along the way. So to go from being a scientist to having to think about accounting, marketing, logistics, manufacturing was a very steep learning curve. I mean, it was incredibly rewarding, but there were mistakes made and there were there's always challenges. But every single challenge you face allows you to grow and to come up with hopefully uh, new ways of doing things. And you can pass on your knowledge to the next generation hopefully, when they have their fantastic yeah. <laughs> ideas. Well, listen, we we, uh, we wish you great luck with that. I'm sure it's any plans now with it to do anything new with the technology or anything that you're looking well, at? Yes. So the, the blue light mask for horses was a great success. And because it is strengthening an animal's circadian rhythms, and if you give use light appropriately, not, you don't only influence the reproductive system, you influence overall health. Just as we're learning in human health that good lighting, so you want blue enriched light by day and an absence of LED screens and blue light at night. That's why so they say put away the phone. Put away Netflix at nighttime and use a, an orangey red glow is what our, we evolved around a campfire. But the new applications are, I've been delighted to work with some researchers at Chagask uh, to look at uh, bovine reproduction and bovine and milk production in the dairy cow. And we've developed a light mask for cows. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> and, and it increases milk production by 9%. Just when did by that one land on, on the scene? It was published in the last month in the Journal of Dairy Science. Okay, so this is a new one. It's very new. So once we have a, a very durable headpiece that will last a full lactation on cows out at pasture, we'll be starting the next phase of studies. But it is Fantastic. it is a technology that is transferable to mo multiple species. Maybe the humans will start wearing them. <laughs> yes, they should. Should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, thank you very much. And the company name, sorry, I'm not Equiloom. Sure. Equiloom. And we're based, Equiloom. based out in Nace. In Nace. Yeah. That was Barbara Murphy there. Now let's hear from Emmeline Hill, another outstanding UCD equine researcher, about her work that is improving the performance of thoroughbred horses in Ireland and around the world. So, how did you get started in equine genetics then? Um, well, I have a science degree from Trinity um, and I did my PhD in human genetics. Um, and this was actually back in the day when the human genome was first being sequenced. And there were lots of new exciting technologies emerging as a result of the human genome sequence. And I thought, well, what if you could apply those tools to asking questions um, about the horse? Um, there was no such thing really as equine genetics at that time. Um, so I moved actually into cattle genetics first when I moved to UCD. Um, cattle are a little bit closer to horses. Um, uh, and then it was in 2004 I was first awarded funding from Science Foundation Ireland to set up my own research group here in UCD um, to investigate genetics contributing to athletic performance traits in thoroughbreds. 
Okay, and did you have a background that got you interested in horses to begin with, or it was you know? Is that... Yeah, I I grew up riding ponies. Yeah. Um, my father bred horses. My grandmother was a jockey, so horses were all around. That's where the interest came wow. from. Wow! And just before I get onto the science, then in the olden days, if you like to call it that, how did they select a good horse? I mean, was it just done by eye or? Uh, so um, pedigree is a key factor and still is. So um, people would look at the pedigree of a horse and try to best guess what genes might have been passed down from ancestors in that pedigree. Um, they'll also look at the physical confirmation um, of the horse um, to try to make an assessment of it. And there, um, you know, over the years, a number of other emerging scientific tools have um, uh been used um, to to various degrees, but essentially the foundations are are still in practice today, which is an assessment of pedigree, um, an assessment of the confirmation characteristics of the horse. I guess you became known for something called the speed gene, or that's what it was called. So maybe tell us about that and how how that happened. Yeah. So in the course of our research here in UCD in two thousand and nine, we did a study where we took a set of horses that were uh, had won at um, elite level in sprint racing uh, and a set of horses that had won at elite racing in longer distance races. Um, and just like humans, um, sprinters and marathon humans <laughs> are very different. They're physically different. Um, they're, they're metabolically different. Um, and, and horses are the same. Well, thoroughbred racehorses are the same. Um, so we asked the question, what, what are the differences in the genes of these two groups of horses? And we found that um, there's one gene called the, the myostatin gene, which is a major uh, control factor in muscle development, um, that a particular genetic variant um, was highly predictive of whether they were sprinters or stayers, as they're referred to in, uh, in racing. So we called it the speed gene because these, uh, the, the, the sprinters um, had a higher frequency of this particular variant. Fantastic. So this was the first time that had been done, right? Anywhere? Uh, it, was, it was the first time this, the speed gene or the myostatin gene had been discovered to be associated with this particular trait. And so we um, turned that into a, a commercial test. So um, while it was, it was um, the research was done in UCD and funded by Science Foundation Ireland, um, I then teamed up with Jim Bolger, a racehorse trainer here in Ireland, to set up a company, um, which we called Equinome. And uh, that was through the Nova Technology Transfer Centre. Um, so we established that company in 2009, launched in 2010, and then started selling um, genetic tests to the global thoroughbred industry. So how's it gone for you over the last 10 years then since you set it up? Um, the company uh, uh, grew very quickly. Um, it was sort of just coming out of the um, or the start of the recession after the 2008-2009 crash. Um, so we had to get on planes very quickly. I went to Australia um, and the Australian market is um, quite different from the market here. They're slightly more progressive, um, not so rooted in the traditions of um, the Irish and English racing industries. Um, so they uh, took it on um, much more quickly than here. Um, so we have a very large client base in Australia. Um, and the company grew. We developed additional tests. So of course, there's not just one gene contributing to performance. There's a whole suite of genes that underpin the various different adaptations for um, you know, metabolic adaptations and 
anatomical and physiological adaptations that are, allow elite performance. So um, we started looking at a lot of other genes and we developed a suite of other tests um, for performance. Um, Equinome was then bought by Plus Vital, which is an, uh, an, equine, an Irish equine nutrition company. So we joined forces in 2015 um, and we're still going. So there's the genetics arm of Plus Vital and the uh, nutrition arm of Plus Vital. And we have a team of researchers uh, in there um, uh, in which we interrogate our, our database of, of genetic information um, to uh, continue to develop novel tests that can be useful um, in improving um, decisions within the thoroughbred industry. So maybe give us an example of how the personalised management of different thoroughbreds, which are very valuable, how that might, how your information might help with that. So for the speed gene, uh, for instance, um, uh, two full siblings um, will have exactly the same pedigree page. Yet genetically, they can be very different because they will have inherited different genetic markers from each parent. Um, so the speed gene information allows trainers to um, uh, manage a horse and train it for what it's genetically made to do rather than making assumptions on what it might do on the basis of what, how its parents performed. So that's a, that's a key um, part of an improvement in management and race placing. Breeders can use it as well to more consistently produce the type of foal that they want if they want to produce sprinters or if they want to produce stayers. Um, there are many stallions now that are advertised with their speed gene test result so that mare owners can pick a stallion with that particular genetic So is it a bit like the Olympics where you did the 800 metres and the marathon and, you know, you could be in the wrong race, possibly? Exactly. So, you, you, you know, you might be an, an athlete and you're bred to be an athlete, but if you're putting a sprinter into a marathon race, it's not going to have as great a chance as if it's actually put into a sprint race. Great. And has, you know, the, have the animals, has there been an improvement? Have people come back to you and said, yeah, that's really helped with, with the management of our, our horses? Oh, absolutely. We have examples from all around the world where... People, trainers have changed um, what they've been doing with the horse um, and have had significant results. I mean, significant results as in winning group races. And that's what it's all about, because that puts value then on the horse as a breeding as breeding stock. And does it help just finally Ireland then and our own thoroughbred industry, uh, this information? Can it help us here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ireland is, uh, you know, regarded all over the world for its, you know, uh, expertise in breeding, training and racing of horses and the thoroughbred industry um, is extremely important to the economy. I think it contributes something over a billion euros uh, to the per year to the industry. Um, so uh, not just not only the speed gene test, but all of the, the science of genetics that is emerging out of not only our research, but associated research here and around the world among the equine genomics community um, is helping with you know the thoroughbred industry all over the world. And it's personalised medicine they talk about. So it's kind of personalised for the horse in this case. It, that's exactly it. Yeah. So yeah. we'd call it you know individual management rather than personal. <laughs> yes. And uh, just I'm curious, a final one. I mean, how do you manage with your research and the business side of things? You must be very busy between the two. Yeah, but there's a good bit of crossover between, you know, there's good synergies uh, between them. I, you know, I, I, I teach students here in UCD and um, our research program, which is more focused on understanding the underlying biology and the fundamentals of what's actually going on I inside the horse. Um, there is crossover to then the commercial 
side, which is developing tests that can be sold and, and, and marketed and used. Um, each feeds into one another. But it's pretty busy, but I wouldn't have it any other way. You were listening there to Emmeline Hill. Well, that's all we have for this episode, episode seven. Let's hear again now from Judy Dowsett about what's coming up in episode eight. The next episode, we're going to be revisiting again this whole idea of agricultural science providing solutions for industry. And um, next um, episode, we're going to be speaking about biodiversity and how agricultural practices are being refined and improved to improve biodiversity. Yeah, so important. Looking forward to that one, Judy. Okay, thanks, Sean. If you'd like to get in touch with us or to make suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please email me, Sean Duke, presenter of AgriFood Matters at seancduke at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it or review it on the iTunes podcast platform or any of the other podcast listening platforms on which it's available, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts and Radio Public. Thanks to you for listening, and until we meet here next time, it's goodbye from all of us here at Agri-Food Matters.